as the Apostle Paul closes his first epistle to his son in the faith, Timothy. In verse 17, he deals with something with which the New Testament deals abundantly, a subject that is of vital importance to all of us, and that is made abundantly clear by the Lord's own teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, and by the teaching of the Apostle Paul and other inspired writers. And that subject is covetousness. That subject is making sure that those who are blessed with material blessings use those blessings to glorify the God of heaven. And so in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul calls upon Timothy to issue a command, not a suggestion, but a command. Notice what he writes. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. What a statement. What a charge is given. Colossians 3 verse 5, another of Paul's epistles, reminds us that covetousness is idolatry. The Lord in the great Sermon on the Mount had a great deal to say about the proper use of money. He gave a parable in Luke 16 that deals with the importance of proper stewardship. And that message has not been lost on some of the greatest preachers of our time in our brotherhood. I was reading just the other day a sermon by the late N.B. Hardiman on Luke chapter 12, and that's another example of great teaching on the importance of a proper understanding and proper use of this world's goods. And in that sermon, in that lesson, the late N.B. Hardiman made a statement that I wrote down to share. It's a sobering statement. He said, I would rather die a hundred times the death of a drunkard and expect God to pardon me than to go down to my grave conscious of the fact that I have been stingy, penurious, and covetous. When the very mainspring of God's attributes, the characteristics, was giving unto mortal man, the richest jewel of heaven, the Son of God, was given through love and mercy that you and I might have life and have it more abundantly. I would rather die a hundred times the death of a drunkard and expect God to pardon me than to go down to my grave characterized by covetousness. It's a powerful statement, sobering statement. And the Lord, obviously, as we said, taught much on the importance of material things and our relationship to those things. In this command in verse 17, Paul was not concerned about Timothy's propensity to be covetous. No, I believe he had great confidence in him. The command was issued to Timothy to pass along to others. Command those who are rich in this present age. And the context would indicate that he's talking about rich brethren here because there were those who 
had a great deal more than others, even in the church in Timothy's time. Just as in the church of our time, there are those who have a great deal more in terms of material things than others have. And yet, and yet, with that having been said, we need to appreciate the fact that by comparison, those of us in this country are rich by comparison to so much of the remaining world. But he says, command these rich brethren, I believe, in the context, not to be haughty. That is, not to be arrogant. You know, there's a tendency when people have an abundance of material things to succumb to the temptation to be arrogant about it, to be high-minded, as some translations render this word rendered haughty in the New King James. Don't be high-minded. Don't look down on others, but have a deep and genuine appreciation for how God has blessed you and keep everything in perspective is the command here. Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty and something else, nor to trust. The word is in the perfect tense indicating not to have settled your mind and affection on something and that's where it is settled, that is on material things. Don't set your mind on things of the earth, borrowing from Paul's other words in Colossians chapter 3, but on things that are not on the earth, on things that are above. And recognize where the true riches in this life are. Notice the contrast, not to trust in uncertain riches, and that's what riches are in the, in, in the sense of material goods. They are very uncertain. They are very fleeting. And this is not the only admonition we have concerning our attitude toward those material fleeting things. We go back to the Old Testament. And a very sobering statement is found in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. What a statement. Let the one who is truly thinking as he should, let the one who is truly rich and understands his spiritual richness, let him understand and know me. That's the one who's truly rich in this world, the one who truly knows God, the one who truly knows Christ. And you know, as we contemplate the idea of rich brethren being under consideration here in verse 17, it reminds me of a statement we've looked at in times past in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 where James is dealing with a poor brother in terms of material goods, and the context clearly indicates a rich brother, but a brother nonetheless on the other hand, on the other uh, side of it. Look at it. Verse 9 of James 1, Let the lowly brother, that is the one who doesn't have much that this world has to offer, let him, let him glory in what? In his exaltation. In other words, let him glory in the kind of riches that he has as a follower of Christ because he's spiritually rich. He doesn't have much of this world's goods, but he is rich beyond 
measure in the things that really matter. But, verse 10 of James 1, but the rich, and I think you can add the word brother there without doing any violence whatsoever to the context because I think he does have a rich brother in mind. But the rich in his humiliation. In other words, let the rich brother who's had enough sense to see that he doesn't need to place his confidence in material goods but has understood and obeyed the gospel and knows where the true riches are to be found, let him glory in the fact that he's been humbled by the gospel of Christ. Because he understands something. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And let that rich brother rejoice in that he understands that. And when he hears the gospel, he obeys it. He's humbled by it. And that poor lowly brother who doesn't have much of this world's goods... He is exalted and made rich spiritually by the gospel. And so one man who's up here in terms of material goods and the other man who's down here in terms of material goods, when that one who's up here humbles himself and obeys the gospel and this lowly brother obeys it and is exalted spiritually, they both meet on level ground in Christ Jesus. Where there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus, where every spiritual blessing is to be found and where the true riches of this life are to be found. So don't trust in uncertain riches. Paul says, command those rich brethren not to to fall prey, not to, to succumb to the temptation to trust in those uncertain riches, but in the living God, and here's, here's the play on words, who gives us richly. Let the rich understand, as well as the poor, that God gives us, all of us richly, all things to enjoy. Think of what we have to enjoy that God gives us. And obviously the context indicates all things to enjoy within the will of God. He doesn't give us to enjoy those things that are worldly and sinful in and of themselves and say you can eat, drink, and be merry because all these are gifts from God. Obviously not. We're talking about those gifts of God that are within His will. And some of them, to a great many people, are insignificant and so simple that they are ignored. The fowls of the air, the flowers of the field, the families, the fellowship, the friendships, and on and on we could go to name those precious entities that God has given us to enjoy, and they're all ours to enjoy, given to us by God. Paul understood it. He not only wrote to Timothy to command those to whom Timothy ministered to understand it, but Paul himself understood it and practiced it. Listen to what he himself wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. He's writing to the Philippian church because they have sent material help to him to sustain him while he's in prison at Rome. And he's expressing appreciation that your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. You didn't have opportunity to send me 
that which will sustain me. But now you've had opportunity and I appreciate it so much. But he quickly adds this in verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How could Paul say that? Because he understood that God gives richly all things to enjoy. And that one can always, who is in the Lord, rejoice because he's in the Lord, regardless of what the external circumstances may be at the time. The further admonition is seen in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 6. Here's what the rich should do with their blessings, with which they have been abundantly blessed beyond others. Let them do good. Go back to verse 17. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but let your trust be in God. But how does trust manifest itself? By action. Let those who truly trust in God, who gives richly all things to enjoy, let them act upon that trust and that confidence by doing good. By being rich how? By being rich in good works. Tragically ironic, isn't it, as we have said before, that so many in the denominational world work so hard to get work out of Christianity when it permeates virtually every page, as it were, of the New Testament, either implicitly or explicitly. Let them do good. Let them be rich in good works. The only way we can be rich spiritually is in good works. The only way we can manifest our trust in God is to demonstrate that trust by obedience. How often have we sung in our lifetime that grand old hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. There's no other way to be in Jesus. Not, on, not only to be happy in Jesus, but there's no way to be in Jesus without trusting and acting upon that trust by obeying and then continuing to obey by being rich in good works, ready to give, indicating an eagerness to give, looking for opportunities to help others, willing to share. Those two, those two phrases are almost identical, and it may be that they're simply there, repeated, as it were, to emphasize how important this matter is, to be ready to give, to be willing to share. And verse 19 reveals a benefit, an everlasting benefit of heeding what Paul is encouraging Timothy to command others to do. What is that benefit? Here's what you're doing when you comply. You are storing up, listen to it, verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. That's storing up for themselves a good foundation. Does that sound anything like something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? At Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. I think Paul had that in mind as the Holy Spirit inspired him to express it in very similar words as the Lord used in Matthew 6 when he said, storing up, you're laying it into a treasury. It's a deposit. It's like a banker's term. You are putting it in the bank of heaven, as it were. And how much more sense does it make to deposit something in the bank of heaven than in any bank on earth? But that's what you're doing. You're storing up. You're laying up treasures in heaven. In this instance, he calls it a good foundation. You're building a foundation by your generosity, by your good works, not just your money. It's not a question from this or any other context that we can buy our way into heaven. We should give generously of our means. But far more is required, far more is involved than simply our giving. It's our giving of ourselves. What did Paul write in Romans 12, 1, beginning? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your pocketbooks as a lip... No. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's a total sacrifice of self that God deserves and demands. And yes, our money is a part of it, but our very lives are absolutely essential to it if we're to be pleasing to God. And if we are to ultimately, for the time to come, Store up that which will enable us to lay hold on what? Eternal life. Or life indeed. You'll have existence. You'll have existence when your body dies and your spirit leaves it. But whether you have life after death, life indeed will depend upon the foundation that you're laying here and now. It, we will exist. Our spirits will never die. But eternal life, life, life as the scripture defines it, life as our crown, as Revelation 2.10 promises to the faithful, that will be dependent upon what we're storing up now, laying up in the bank of heaven, as it were, for that time to come. That time to come is a reference to the judgment very clearly when time is no more. And notice something. He says, when that time comes, if you've done what is right here, you can then what? You'll be able to lay hold on eternal life. What does that say about the contention that we have eternal life here and now? In reality, we don't. This is just one of many passages that makes it abundantly clear that what you are doing now will enable you to lay hold on eternal life as a reality, but now you only have it in promise or in prospect. And passages like Titus 1 and verse 2 make that clear. In hope of eternal life, Paul said there. 1 John 2.25 says, and this is the promise he promised us, eternal life. It's a promise. 
It's a prospect. And we can lay hold on it as a reality when this life is over, if we conduct ourselves as we should. And that conduct clearly involves the gospel. The last two verses of this epistle have been described as a summary of the entire epistle. Listen to these last two verses. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, that false knowledge, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. First of all, he says, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard. Guard it. Keep it. If you'll look at Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul's second epistle to Timothy, you get, a, you get a divine commentary, if you will, on how that guarding is accomplished. There, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14 and says, That good thing which was committed to you, keep, guard over here in verse 20, same word in the original, keep, Listen to this, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Guard the gospel, verse 20 of 1 Timothy 6. Keep that which was committed. That's the gospel also, 2 Timothy 1.14. How was Timothy to keep it? By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. At the time Paul penned these words, the Holy Spirit was inspiring men. The instruction that came, came through inspired men. And so what he was saying is, by the teaching of that Holy Spirit, by the teaching that is in inspired men that's being revealed, you can guard the gospel because that's how you learned of the gospel, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The admonition is still valid for us today, though. How are we to guard the gospel? How are we to keep that which has been committed to us through men like Timothy and other inspired men who wrote it down? We're to keep it by the Holy Spirit. But how does that spirit dwell in us? That spirit dwells, as it were, or affects us, influences us through what? The all-sufficient word. So if we are to guard the gospel, if we are to keep that which has been committed to us, if we're Christians this morning, we must do so by the all-sufficient, all-powerful, complete word of God. Not by a better felt than told idea of what the Holy Spirit is and does today. This is the sword of the Spirit. This is all we need to be able to guard what's been committed to us. And notice, in telling him to guard the gospel, he wasn't telling him to to hoard it and to hide it. He was to go as we are to go. We're to guard the gospel to keep it pure as we go with the gospel into all the world. And do all that we can to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We know Timothy wasn't being told to hide the gospel. Because in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, what did Paul tell him there? There he said, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Guard it and go with it. And that charge is still valid for every member of the Lord's body. Today. And as we go, we are to avoid what? 
profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You know, I cannot, I cannot help but read when I read those words, I cannot help but think of the falsely called knowledge, I cannot help but think of evolution. That's the most dominant and prominent pseudo-knowledge in existence today, I think, in terms of its prevalence. And yes, it has caused many to stray concerning the faith because there have been those, even among brethren, who've embraced what is called theistic evolution. And that is an effort to compromise biblical truth about creation with evolution so that they land somewhere in the middle and contend that, yes, God did create, but he created everything through evolution. That's false to the core. You know, I have a little book with me this morning. A little book entitled, Are You My Mother? It was written in 1960 by a man by the name of P.D. Eastman. He is he's dead now. But this was one of several children's books he wrote. And it's very interesting because the little bird here in this book gets lost from his mother's nest. She sits on the nest and the egg is hatched and she thinks, oh, my baby will be here. I can feel the, the egg jumping under me and so I've got, I've got to go get something for my baby bird to eat so I'll be back. And so away she went. The egg jumped and jumped and out came the baby bird and yes, his first words, if a baby could, bird could talk, and we're extending our disbelief here, where is my mother? Where is my mother? He looked for her. He looked up. He didn't see her. He looked down. He didn't see her. I'll go and look for her, he said. So away he went, down out of the tree. He went long way down. Couldn't fly, so he had to walk. So he begins his journey, and he comes to a kitten. And the kitten just looked and looked and didn't say anything. He came to a kitten. Are you my mother? He said to the kitten, and the kitten just looked at him. The kitten was not his mother, so he came to a hen, a mother hen. He said, are you my mother? No, said the hen. The hen was not his mother, and then on he goes. He comes to a dog, and the dog says, I'm a dog. I'm not your mother. The kitten was not his mother. The hen was not his mother. The dog was not his mother. So the baby bird went on, and he came to a cow. Are you my mother? He said to the cow. How could I be your mother? Said the cow. I am a cow. The kitten and the hen were not his mother. The dog and the cow were not his mother. Did he have a mother? I did have a mother, said the baby bird. I know I did. I have to find her. I will. I will. And so now he didn't walk. He ran. He saw a car and he said, could that old thing be my mother? No. He didn't stop. He just ran on and on. He looked down at a boat. Is that my mother? The boat went on. He looked up at a plane. The plane flew on. That can't be my mother. And then he came to something he would later call a snort, which was an earth-moving machine. And it picked him up. And he said, you're not my mother. You're a snort. Because that was the sound it made to him. And he said, I've got to get out of here. But he couldn't get away. The snort went up, it went way, way up, and up and up went the baby bird. Now where was the snort going? Well, if you know the story, you know where the snort went. The snort came to a stop eventually. The baby bird was distraught, and then something happened. The snort put that baby bird right back in the tree. 
the baby bird was home. Just then the mother bird came back to the tree. Do you know who I am? She said to her baby. Yes, I know who you are, said the baby bird. You are not a kitten. You are not a hen. You are not a dog. You are not a cow. You are not a boat. You are not a plane or a snort. You are a bird, and you are my mother. Don't you wish a lot of the world understood the message of that book written in 1960? That everything should bring forth, the Genesis record says, after what? After its kind. After its kind. That's the message of P.D. Eastman's book, really. Whether he intended it or not. But it's also a message that is clearly set forth in the creation account in Scripture and it has never been contradicted nor will it ever be. The missing link is still missing. And the evidence for creation and for the biblical account is overwhelming. Therefore, if I can believe that, why shouldn't I believe all of this? And if I do, then indeed... I will obey the gospel. And then Paul's last wish in that first epistle to Timothy will be one that will be applicable to me. Grace will be with me. Literally, he says, the grace be with you. Amen. The grace. The grace that comes through obedience to the gospel of Christ. And unless you've obeyed that gospel, you do not have that grace because grace has its limits. And it's limited to those who brought their lives into harmony with the will of God. If you haven't done that this morning, we plead with you to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Rise to walk in newness of life. Saved by the grace of God, yes, but with your obedient faith as your part. Because it takes both. And then the grace will be with you as you continue to walk in the light as he is in the light. If you haven't continued that walk as a child of God and you know you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.